live at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island. It's Cofield and Company. That was not bad. Uh, hotel lobby in Reno, trying not to scare people. What do you think, John? Not bad. I'll, I'll, I'll open it up. There's no one really around. Actually, the coffee shop I'm next to at the hotel, they had just shut down the lights, so I didn't scare her. She's trying to close down. So maybe we can do it. We'll do a fake open again at 545, and I'll really freaking scream. But we're fired up to be here on a Friday, both Reno and in Vegas at Treasure Island. John Von Tobel carrying much of the first half of the show. Appreciate that. John, we were just talking about XFL, and John, I know you wanted to get into the Combine, and what a perfect guy to talk to in Stanford route, who played for a long time in the NFL, uh, ran like a 3540 uh, when he was at Houston, the speedster, to get into the Combine. Stanford, how you doing, buddy? Fellas, fellas, doing pretty good, man. Love this time of the year. Got the Combine action. Got NBA getting uh, heated up. So, man, I'm I'm all smiles right now. We got a free agency coming around the corner for the NFL. So I have uh, right here in front of me NFLCombineResults.com. Stanford, do you know what some of your measurements were in terms of, like, 40-yard dash and stuff? Do you remember them? Uh, yes, I still remember a good amount of them. So what was your 40-yard dash time? 4.27. Ooh, they got you down at 4.33. Uh-oh. Oh, come on. No, baby. No, baby. Come on now. I, I know that 427 on there. <laughs> you got you peaking at about 18.9 miles an hour. Maybe these are off. <laughs> what, was, what was that like for you in terms of these combines? Because we were actually we're watching the DBs you know, today work out and the, all of these guys doing it in front of everybody here. Uh, it's obviously a really big moment for them. What was that like for you going out there? Oh, you know, I think for a lot of guys, especially from the for the ones who do not necessarily go to Power Five schools, or they're not going to the schools named Alabama or Georgia, USC, Oklahoma, Florida. You know, the blue bloods of college football. It's a it's the biggest job interview they'll ever have, and. What makes it so amazing is that it now is an even playing field. And when you're out there doing those drills, when you're running the 40, when you're doing the 5-10-5, the L drill, the vertical jump, things like that, all you have is DB number 43 or DB number 15. So there's not that built-in, just, you know, that that that, that built-in natural uh, justification that somebody may want to make just off the simple fact of what type of decal you have on your helmet, whether it's a gator, whether it's a longhorn, things like that. So it eliminates that bias. It takes everybody, it puts them on an even playing field. So for a lot of guys, this is the biggest job interview they'll ever have in their life. And for the first time in a long time, they are now on the playing field that they so have highly coveted for so long because they feel like they've been overlooked. And I got to imagine it goes both ways, right? Like, for for example, you could go out there, somebody didn't go to one of those power fives and be a little nervous, like, okay, I'm out here with all these guys, went to these good schools. But at the same time, you watch a dude who was highly recruited that went to, like, let's say in Alabama, run a really terrible 40 or something like that, and you're like, oh, like, these guys are just like me. Like, I can build a lot of confidence off of some of these exercises. 
Yeah, you know, and I think that uh, playing football or just playing sports in general, you cannot be good. You cannot play at a high level without believing in yourself to the nth degree. So for anybody who's going to be at the Combine this weekend, they already believe in themselves. And so whenever you're able to now be, like I said, on that proverbial even playing field, that's what you've been asking for. That's what you want because you're tired of being overlooked. And it's something that when you get out there, you see that guy who was the number one uh, rated prospect at your position coming out of high school. He's staring at you right in the face. He's You're rubbing shoulders with him. You're at the meat market. You're over there doing the bench press. So now this is your time. This is your opportunity for so long for throughout your freshman, sophomore, junior year. You're sitting back watching this guy play on national TV in big, t- in big time games thinking, man, I'm just as good as that guy. He just was, you know, higher touted coming out of high school. He just simply had more accolades, things like that. Well, you know what? If I ever get my opportunity, I'm going to prove that I'm better than him. Well, that opportunity is right here, right now, going on to Indianapolis. Stanford Route is with us. We're talking NFL Combine. Stanford, uh, his numbers were amazing. Obviously, he made the NFL, played for a long time in the National Football League. As a vet of the league and now away from the league for a little while, what do you think when we start getting all fired up about defensive linemen and defend, you know, defensive inside guys and, and ends running? You know, we saw one guy, uh, 238 pounds, run a, a sub 4-4. We saw a 280-pounder run like a 4-6-7. What does that really mean? Like, you, you know the game. What does that really mean for those guys who are going to be playing on edge rush and inside? Well, I think uh, any time you got somebody, let's say like a DN, uh, I think that that definitely could pay big dividends. We all see uh, Dwight Freeney several years ago. He ran a really, really good 40 time. I don't think that he went a game in college at Syracuse without registering a sack. And we see how that was able to translate over to the football field. So I do think at certain positions, I do believe actually putting guys through the 40, the 5, 10, 5, or should I just say, just seeing what their their 5 to 10 yard timing is. I definitely think that uh that it, it definitely pays a big part, but I don't think it shows the entire picture because you I can go down the list of numerous players that are really, really good in the NFL that do not have stellar 40 times. So I think that it's a tool that you can use to help you understand and evaluate a player, but by no means do you just look at the 40 time and you let that be the deciding factor on whether we're going to take this guy in the first round or not take him at all. What's the most important drill or metric for a corner, for a cover corner? What do you think? Uh, I would probably say the DB drills, number one, over the 5-10-5 or the L drill, the 40-yard dash. And when we're talking about those drills specifically, you gotta sh- you got to be able to show that you're able to flip your hips. That's the main thing, flipping your hips, that rapid foot fire, being able to have that T-step instead of the bicycle that a lot of young corners try to do, which means if they're playing on a field in inclement weather, they're only able to get three or four studs into the ground versus a T-step, which means they can get all all seven studs into the ground, which means they have a higher chance of not slipping if it's raining. You got the sleet, the snow, ice, things like that, especially if they're playing up there in Buffalo, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Green Bay. I can go all the way down the list for any place up north. So to me, it's all about can they flip their hips? Are they fluid in them? Can they get back and staying on that straight line and then seeing exactly how good their feet are coming in and out of their breaks? So I'm going to pivot here. I want to, I'm going to put you on the griddle because I'll put all of us on the griddle. And let's go. Jalen Carter is going to be a top 10 pick 
I believe that even with the problems in the drag race, he was charged with a couple of misdemeanors. But we got a different situation here in Vegas, or do we? You know, with Henry Ruggs not really even in the rearview mirror because he hasn't gone to trial yet. What should the Raiders do? If Jalen Carter is there at seven and he's got this hanging over his head, but the Raiders also just dealt with, you know, both Ruggs and, you know, the, the worst and uh, Damon Arnett driving incidents. What do you do if you're the Raiders? Just look at it like, hey, it's misdemeanors. It's a different guy. You can't lump them together. What do you do? I think if you're the Raiders, if you're proverbially the New England Patriots West, I think that they're probably going to go ahead and just pass on him completely because of what you've seen the past couple years with Ruggs, with Damon Arnett, like you just explained. That Henry Ruggs situation, like you just said, hasn't even gone to trial yet. And the last thing that you want to do as an organization or as a GM is still have that stain on you for drafting guys that simply are not having spotless records whenever they're off the field. Now, like I said, you just said everything about Carter. I get it. You got the uh, the warrant issued for his arrest, things like that. He went, he turned himself in. He was, he was released, what, 15 minutes later, mm-hmm. things like that. So it's obviously not exactly the same type of situation as Henry Ruggs, and I get that. And we're going to let the legal system and everything play out. But from the Las Vegas Raiders, from their brain trust, and seeing how things were for New England, I'm saying to you, I don't think they're going to consider drafting him. I'm not saying what I would do. I'm saying what they're probably thinking because of what has transpired with Henry Ruggs and Damon Arnett in recent history. Yeah, it's the optics of using a top 10 pick on a guy who was involved in reckless driving situation in which there was a exactly. loss of life, right? Like, you can't That's do that. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, just, it's simply optics. That's exactly what it is. Having said that, Stanford and, and Steve, too, like I, I, I think they're going to pass on him as well, but I don't think they're going to get the chance to draft him. I think by the time we get to April, when everything oh, wow. is said and done, I don't think it's going to matter. And I like I don't think I'm going down a limb here. You said it, Steve. It was a misdemeanor. It was a four thousand dollar bond. Doesn't it like his hearing is before the draft? It might get cleared up by then. Yeah. We have seen these NFL teams really not care that much about more serious things. And I would assume that if this is all cleared up by the time he gets to that first hearing and the draft comes around, he's the best non quarterback prospect in the NFL draft. I'm going to assume that that's not going to keep teams from drafting him. Yeah. Now, now I'll tell you like this. Now. Once the legal process plays out, because mind you, we're, we're now, right now, we are in early March. We're March 3rd. The draft is not for another, what, 45 to 60 days or something like that. So there's still plenty of time for all this to go play out. It all comes out that, you know what, he's not culpable. He's not somebody that was responsible, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if that all transpires before the draft, then you know what, everything is right back on the table. But if it's still being delegated, if it's still being negotiated, if it's still being litigated, anything like that, that's where I think especially teams like the Raiders that have had their own scuff-ups with drafting players that have checkered past, with drafting players that necessarily have off-the-field incidents that are still looming over their head, that's where I think that the Las Vegas Raiders, because of their recent history, that's where they are going to be under a microscope of the simple optics of how this looks. Boy, I hate to heat, uh, keep hitting the crime blotter, but there's another big story involving that could involve a former Raider and Derek Carr. So Alvin Kamara had that fight that he was involved in. I'm not even going to say alleged because we could see it on video. 
Uh, trial is now set for July 31st. NFL didn't hand down any punishment last year. I don't know when this thing is going to be settled. Long story short, if Kamara has a risk of missing a significant portion of a season, what does Derek Carr do when he looks at the Saints? Like, how do you how do you quantify that? I, I mean, you're going to get a long-term deal. You're just like, oh, whenever he misses, he misses, but that's the team I want to go to. Oh, I think that uh, uh, it, it's something that for Alvin Kamara, I don't foresee him being suspended or anything like that for a whole really? season. Um, okay. Um, like I said, he yeah, he's, he's probably going to be punished by the NFL. At least that's what I would assume. But yeah. I don't think it's going to be for a full season. So if I'm Derek Carr and I'm strongly looking at the New Orleans Saints, that's not something that's going to completely deter me because I don't foresee Derek Carr signing a one-year deal with the New Orleans Saints. So – Alvin Kamara presumably is going to be back in the fold in the 2024 season for the full entirety of that season. So I don't think that that's something that is going to weigh heavily in his decision uh, for the New Orleans Saints, if that's the team that it may be. So Stanford, just a couple minutes ago, we were talking to one of the ESPN broadcasters who uh, does college football, former lineman at Clemson, Eric McLean, and he's covering the XFL. So the XFL for us here in Vegas is, is challenging because – uh, you know, if it were 15 years ago, well, like it was 20 years ago, it was really popular. And we had, you know, for the few games they played, we had a lot of fans out there. But Vegas has changed a lot in 20 years. And we'll see if the crowds are going to show up. It's going to be a, a tough deal to get some fans out there early on. I wanted to ask you about the league and the opportunity and, you know, how many guys you knew from, say, like 26 to 30 years old in the league who were in and out of the league who would have loved to play in a league like this for, you know, one final chance to get back in. Oh, I think there's several guys. You talking about as far as getting back in, or you talking about guys who may simply have not been drafted and they're trying to you know find what? their way in? It can be either one because that's what these rosters are filled with. Like we've got Martavis Bryant on the roster, and then we've talked to guys who were like, "Yeah, you know, I've tried for five years. I had bad luck at this point." I mean, it's a mix of you know dreamers basically trying to get in the league. Yeah, I think that uh, it's definitely something that a lot of players will look into, especially if they were not drafted. Somebody that feels like, okay, I'm not on the NFL roster right now, but let me go ahead and continue to hone my skills, and then I can get noticed playing within the XFL. I think that there's definitely a number of guys that uh, that definitely would have considered that, and it's unfortunate that this is now coming to fruition right now, the USFL, the XFL, and for so many players not having that that outlet not having that opportunity some 10 15 years ago so it obviously just goes to show with the natural progression within society but yes definitely for a number of players that would have been a great opportunity for them all right you when you finished up in the nfl were you done had you made enough money were you done physically were you done mentally like at at 30 you I, that's when i think you were out of the league right about 30, yeah, 30. 31 years old what would you uh -huh. Like, if the XFL was around, would you be like, yeah, you know what, let me give it one more try, or were you just done? No, nah, I was done. I don't think I would have done anything like the XFL or USFL just because from that standpoint, you know, I was, I was about 30 years old, so it's not something that I would have thought heavily about. I mean, obviously, I still love the game. That's why, like I said, I'm coaching, doing broadcasting, things like that, but from a standpoint of putting my body through the rigorous training, I did not have the high desire to do that, and especially not doing it on the NFL level because now you're doing it in the offseason for the USFL, for the XFL. So it completely flips everything upside down as far as your training, as far as your off time, things like that. So I, I love watching it, uh, but it's something I've definitely started to 
to grow upon me over the last couple of years. But as far as me looking into playing in the XFL or USFL or what have you, way back uh, right around the time I retired, no, that's not something I would have given any thought. Uh, let's close on this. Let's go to college football. You mentioned you're working with your alma mater mm-hmm. in the Houston Cougars. Uh, when do you guys start spring practice? Oh, we've already started. You have? Mm-hmm. How yes. many days in? Uh, we are a full weekend. So far, we've Ooh. had two practice days this week. Okay, so same as UNLV. Um, I haven't followed the, the roster building and, and movement on the Cougars roster. Did you have a guy, a bunch of guys in with some guys out? Like, what's the roster look like? Big hit on the transfer portal? What's the deal? Oh, yeah, we got several guys in on the transfer portal, obviously, that we, uh, that we, that we made sure to go ahead and target in the offseason. And then also we've got certain guys that we lost to presumably the NFL right now at the NFL Combine right now. So it's definitely nice. going to be – very interesting to see exactly what our team makeup becomes between right now, March 3rd, and when the season opener is in, uh, in September. And you, know, you guys are having some success, a lot of success over the years. And um, Holgerson's been there for a while. It's a new yes. coach here in Barry Odom who was at Arkansas as the D.C., former Missouri head coach at UNLV. So he's going to try to bring in a new defense. And i got to tell you, I would have loved to be sitting there with you at practice today as a former D.B., so it looks like UNLV is going to go to more of a 3-3-5. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. defensive backs, uh, whether it's corners or safeties, are a big premium. And I counted today, and I think there will be some attrition. I think it's all about competition. They they had 22 defensive backs at practice today. Oh, wow. So they definitely yeah. have a lot of depth. <laughs> wow. Well, they do for now. But, I mean, I think it signals that they're going to play uh, – you know, they're going to play 3-3-5 or even, you yes. know, 3-2-6 at – I guess that's too many players, but no, that is right. Um, they're going to play three, two, six at times. What What do you think it's like when you play in defenses like that for defensive backs when they play such a role? And a lot of times they're creeping up to the line of scrimmage or in the middle of the field instead of bigger linebackers. Well, yeah, I think that uh, right now there's so much about spacing within the game of college football, even the NFL, because of the RPO, because of the read option, because of all of that with these quarterbacks now being more dual threat, because they're now flinging the ball all over the field. You you struggle to just simply have four down linemen, three linebackers, and four DBs like you once did because now it is always 11 personnel. And for anybody listening, that's one back, that's one tight end, and three receivers. Or you have 10 personnel, one back, zero tight ends, and four receivers. So you have so much more of an aerial attack. You have so much more of just the aerial mindset approach to a lot of offenses. you got to have multiple DBs out there and to run that 3-3-5 stack. It's something that a lot of offensive linemen are not privy to. They're not ready for that type of front yet. And also it allows you to be able to have a lot of team speed because now you got that fifth DB or you can run big nickel where you got that bigger type of safety who also was able to cover in the slot, things like that, like a Derwin James for the Los Angeles Chargers. That's something that is highly coveted right now in all of football on all different levels because you have to be able to stop the pass, but you also got to be able to be physical enough to stop the run a lot of times from a sub package. That's why the big nickel right now is probably the most the, the most highly coveted sub package position in all of sports right now in all of football stanford you're awesome we always appreciate your experience playing the game all good man you guys be good i will talk to you next week all right stanford appreciate it thanks a lot man 
All right, we're uh, live from TI. Let's uh, take our break here, Ari. We'll get reset as we uh, wrap up. we got a lot left here in the last 40 minutes of Cofield and Company. Now back to Cofield and Company, live at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island. Yep, that's our Friday home. John Von Tobel is there. I'm on the road with the Running Rebels for a rivalry game tomorrow, 2 o'clock tip with uh, John Sandler. And Curtis Terry, actually, uh, running Rebel warm-up goes at 1.30. You know, it's funny. I just realized, John, that earlier when we were talking to Eric McLean, the XFL announcer, about the Vipers, I made a reference to someone hitting a jackpot in the background. Yes. I completely forgot that, that you were also at a casino. Correct. He was probably walking outside, and he's like, what? You heard a jackpot and bells? Like, that's not me. Oops. But I think he was uh, – he probably was just like, ha, Vegas joke. Like, I get it, you know? Yeah. Um, did he not hear you on the Dermody question, or did he just not know the story? Because that happens sometimes. You know, people are on the road. They don't see all the stories. Oh, I took it as he knew the story and didn't want to talk about it as an XFL broadcaster. So what is this story where uh, it looks like an XFL player gave another team the playbook? Yeah, so the and, – and the weird thing is, is so – for those who did not see this – um, is it Dove Kleiman who works for the NFL Network? He just tweets out that uh, Quentin Normandy, uh, one of the quarterbacks for, I think it was the Guardians, was released from his team. His name and his stats were erased from the website because it is alleged that he had given away the playbook. He was investigated and was released. And, like, that was it. Like, there was no, there's been no follow-up reports. There's been, like, no details about this. It's just that he may have given away the playbook. It was investigated as such, and he was not only cut from the team but eliminated from the website. So, certainly sounds like he was giving away the playbook. Yeah. And I'm fascinated by this because this is, like, as we have talked about, one of the themes, the overarching themes, right, with the XFL we've talked about multiple times, whether it was with McLean or whether it was Stanford, this is an opportunity for guys to put forth on film good things for teams to then sign. Like You would assume that while you want to win games, this is all to a certain extent some sort of brotherhood, right? Because you're all in the same boat. We want to all get to the next level. Whatever we did in our careers to this point wasn't good enough. We want to get to the NFL. Why would you usurp your own team by giving away the playbook? I don't know, man. We got to get more on the story because there's got to be a lot more depth to this thing, right? Right. Like, there's got to be, like, a personal thing to this. Like, he has to have, like, hated his coach or some of the other team. (laughs) There there has to be a personal element because it just just doesn't really jive with what we know what the league is for. It just doesn't make any sense. Can you grow to hate a coach in, like, four weeks? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I guess there are people out there who quit their jobs after one or two weeks because they cannot stand the boss. Yep. Oh, I think you can grow to hate somebody really quickly, really quickly. So I would say absolutely you can grow to hate somebody in that short amount of time. Stanford Rat was with us, the former Oakland Raider, and we brought up the Raiders situation if this Jalen Carter kid from Georgia were to fall to seven. He's been projected as a top ten pick, but he's got a driving incident now on his, well, it's not on his record yet, but he's got a couple of misdemeanor charges, but it's a horrific incident. You had a couple of people die in a drag race. Interesting quandary for the Raiders, but I I think you're right on your prediction that it might not be the Raiders, but unless people dig up just abhorrent behavior consistently from this kid Mm -hmm. and poor judgment and lousy character, 
like a big resume of that stuff, this incident alone will not allow him to slip out of the top ten. Out of the top ten, Steve, he's still going to get drafted by the Chicago Bears. You think he's going to? Yeah, no, I think check he's going to. Check that one, I guess one, depending on where the Bears, if they trade. Right. So you, think, you think the Bears would be one of the teams, and I think the Cardinals would have a lot of interest, too. Right. And, and when I say the Bears, in my theory here, they're trading back to four, as everybody assumes that's going to happen, and they're, they're drafting him there. But I, I don't think he's getting out of the top five. As you mentioned, it, he seems to be on track in terms of taking care of all this stuff. But, and I don't mean to sound callous about this, but the NFL has a history, frankly, of just not caring. Right, like they, they do. Like the, the the reason why Laramie Tunsil that happened is because it happened on draft night. The video, if yeah. that happened two months prior, by the time we get to the NFL draft, Laramie Tunsil is going to be fine. Yeah, and he would so, have been a, he would have been a first round pick, of course. So like it, it, or a top ten pick, I guess you're right for Tunsil because they think he slipped like seventeen or whatever it was. But like oh, I'm the, sorry, yeah. The, so the whole point is just. Like the NFL has shown time and time again that the, the character backgrounds of these guys come second to none when it comes to winning. And if Jalen Carter is just dealing with a misdemeanor that can be taken care of, and frankly, Steve, I don't know about you, I think a $4,000 bond tells you that really this is going to yeah. be something that might be easily taken care of for him, that by the time we get to the NFL draft in the first round, he's still the best non-quarterback prospect and that a team is not really going to care. And a, and a guy, frankly, who by all accounts fits really well with what the Bears want to do defensively, if this is cleared up, why would he slip past five? So I got to get your reaction to my comment to Stanford. I mean, we were talking about defensive backs, and uh, I happened to be out this morning at the second UNLV spring football practice. And what I like to do is kind of see who you know who's here, who's not, because the rosters, you know, these uh, these college rosters are always in flux, always have new players, and um, going into spring. UNLV had roughly, I think, 31 new in, although everyone who signed is not in yet. But, uh, you know, with the expectations that, like, you know, 8, 10, 12 people could be out now, and it could be another 8 or 10. So, I mean, it it could wind up, John, it could wind up being, because it happened with the Royals' uh, final year, it could wind up being, like, 38 new guys in and 30 out. Mm. And I find the defensive back stuff fascinating because – Michael Scher and and Odom, Scher's the, the uh, defensive coordinator, and Odom, they they want to play a, a defensive back heavy defense, and then everyone's going to have different roles, and there's going to be roles for big fellows up front, and then bigger linebackers and, and linebackers in general, but you're going to have some safeties creep up and play in linebacker roles. And when I looked out to today, I was kind of you know cross referencing the roster, and I'm like, okay, that guy's back, that guy's back, I know him, that number. I'm like, okay, new, 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 new. Oh, like holy crap. There were, if my count is correct, there were 22 defensive backs practicing today, which seems just insane. But you have to understand what's happening here. Um, it matches the defense they're going to play, and they want to find out uh, who wants to stay around, who can step up amongst the veterans, and then who's ready to go with the, the newer guys. So it, that was pretty incredible to watch out there is the, the numbers of total D-backs. It, well, in, it speaks to what Odom wanted, right? When he, one of the first things that he talked about when he was talking about constructing the roster he wanted, one of the things he pointed out was when we were sitting at that recruiting press conference, he thought that this roster lacked depth, like severely, I think is one of the <laughs> words that he used. So, yeah, so, yeah, right. So he threw a ton of bodies at it. And as you mentioned, it's, it's going to get pared down as you kind of go along. But at the end of the day, it's a defense that's going to use a lot of defensive backs. It was, I would say, from a depth perspective, one of the weaker – position groups for UNLV last season and when they started to lose guys you saw the play drop off quickly 
So if you're talking about adding all of those things together, it would make a lot of sense to have a lot of bodies on the field when it came to defensive back. Well, and last year, and it's really been the last couple of years, it goes back to Sanchez. In a, in a league where there's all these awesome passing quarterbacks and great wide receivers and high-octane offenses, they just have not had enough high-level, big defensive backs plus the depth. So I think I'm not going to say it's completely fixed, but they've got much bigger bodies out there to play the safety positions and you know they're they're going to have to they're going to have to find solutions at the corner slots because Noah Williams is a really good player and he went off to Cal. He was a legit number 1 cornerback and then between being beat up and and injured, you know they had a big rotation on the other side and I don't know that either one of those guys came out or Ricky Johnson has locked down the job yet. So this is going to be fascinating. I, I love spring practice because it's a it's a much uh, looser atmosphere, um, and I love the theme of this one, John, because you follow the roster as closely as I do. There are guys, you know, when you go from one boss to another and one coaching staff to another, there are guys who were established, mm-hmm. right? And all of a sudden they're like, oh, crap. Like, it's almost like being a freshman again. Like, I have to fight for my spot. I got to get the respect. And then I think the more exciting thing is those guys who maybe fell out of favor with the last coaching staff are like, fresh start. I get a chance. Like, I was really fired up yesterday, and I, I we had Brennan Marion on, and you can hear that interview up uh, on Twitter, at ESPN Las Vegas, and at Steve Cofield. Uh, Marion is the OC, and I was mentioning to him, it was really cool at the first practice to see, like, Javon Wilson, who is a running back transfer from Oregon, who's he's been at UNLV for two years, and he just ha- he can't catch a break with health. And to see him at, you know, 6'2 and 210, you understand why he was, like, a three-, four-star recruit, you know, getting downhill, turning the corner, on a uh, pass out of the backfield, I'm like, this is neat. You know, this is what spring practice is for, is the, the chance for everyone to kind of prove themselves and get ready for the fall. Yeah, and I can't wait to see, like you said, the established guys just in new environments, if they are going to be remaining established guys and how they're going to thrive under new coaching and what different things they'll unlock in their game with some different guys looking at them and helping them out when it comes to just the little parts of what they're going to do. I, no, it's, it's an exciting time, obviously, if, if you're a UNLV football fan, but it's an interesting time now because you get to see a roster develop in a, in a different archetype, in a different way that a coach wants. We got conference basketball, uh, conference championship basketball coming to Vegas in the form of uh, you know five conference tournaments. We've got tickets to the Mountain West Conference Tournament. That's our home tournament. It's been here forever. It's at the uh, Thomas and Mac. We've got a pair of tickets for later next week in the Men's tournament, two tickets, 364-1100, 364-1100, caller seven. John, down at Treasure Island, do you have uh, MWCT tickets or uh, NIT? Oh, I've got both, Steve. So why don't, come on, let's go. Yeah. Get down to Treasure Island. Parking is free. So he's got Mountain West Conference tournament tickets. And for the first time, the NIT is moving its semifinals and finals, and we're getting a shot at it. It's at the Orleans Arena, and John's got tickets. That tournament goes down the 28th and the 30th of March. So basketball all month long on the ground in Vegas and around the country. Follow the guys on Twitter at Steve Cofield and at me, JVT, or tweet the show at Cofield and Co. You are listening to Cofield and Company live at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar inside Treasure Island. Oh boy, John. I just got texted and presented with one of those interesting challenges when you live in Vegas. It can be a good thing and sometimes it can be a bad thing. When people come from in, uh, come from out of town to visit okay. and want restaurant advice. But this one is even tougher because it is a friend of ours giving 
our numbers. It's uh, actually Adam Hill and I to a friend of his. So we don't even know these people. Oh. So, and, and the first question was, hey, what kind of place do you want to go to? And the response was, okay. anything. Yep. No, no, come on. You can't do anything. It was like, oh, trendy or fancy. I'm like, no. What does that mean? Well, that was the laundry list of qualifiers that or descriptions that Adam Hill gave the person, and that's how the person answered. So, so I'm just going to send where I like to go, and we'll see what happens. Okay. And I'm sure in two months, you're like, that place sucked. Right. Like, All right. Bunch of CD karaoke bars. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you to uh, Chinatown, and as you do your karaoke, uh, you can actually get the food for free, but you have to stay for five hours and build up levels. Right. So. Speaking of, I actually went to a karaoke place last week that's new that I hadn't been to. Maybe the best setup I've ever been at in terms of the, uh, like the interface. I know this is, for people who don't do karaoke, it doesn't mean anything. But when you rent rooms, it's interesting the way they set it up and how you can pick the song. So I won't name the place. If you want to you know, hit me up on Twitter, I'll, I'll tell you about it. But uh, it was good. So maybe I'll tell them to go there. You want to do karaoke? Here you go. They have good fries and... Uh, and some good uh, Korean chicken. How about that? Oh, okay. It's not the place that I was thinking of. I had a oh, uh, really? spot in mind. Well, when you said fries, I don't think the place that I uh, that I that I've been to before serves fries. So, no, totally, totally different. It's a newer place. It just actually uh, moved from one location downtown to a, a spot oh, okay. in Chinatown. So let's talk about this this big weekend. Um, there's a bunch of events coming up that are already in town. Oh. You know, when we're talking about VGK hockey with the Devils and Canadians on a Friday and Sunday. I want to talk John Jones here in a second, the betting odds on that fight. But, you know, I also want to talk about something coming up in just a little bit with Big League Weekend and what's going on so far in the first week or so with baseball and these changes. And I heard a really good interview today. Uh, one of Ari's good buddies, uh, Tim Kirchin, who we have to get on. You like Tim? Well, his son was working here, right? You, I know you always used to chat him up, and Tim would be all fired. You don't, you don't remember that, huh? Boy, oh boy, <laughs> so weird, isn't it? So weird. Um, yeah, we, we. Uh, I, I thought you. I, I thought I heard you on the phone with Kirkshen talking about his son, who actually moved out of the market. He was doing country radio, and I think he went to another market. I cannot remember where, but anyway, uh, Tim Kirkshen on Dan Patrick was talking about uh, most of it is going pretty well, John. The, the time of the games has been chopped down a lot, but he did mention the end of game scenario with some of the rules that could actually shut down a game in an important time is some real dangerous stuff, especially when people are watching and they don't know the rules. Mm-hmm. This could be a major blank up. Oh, like, I, wouldn't it be great if, like, the World Series was won on, like, a pitch clock violation or something? That's exactly what he said because what, what's already happened in the spring? We saw, I mean, one of, the, one of the big moments was Max Scherzer had induced a double play, but that was called off because Scherzer took too long to get the pitch off. The play, the pitch clock expired, so yeah. that that double play turned into nope. Bring him back. Let's go. And I love it. I mean, I'm down with it, man. Yeah, the, the rules, man. They're gonna learn them. Of course, and, and you know, I I always say this too. I will say in like in watching it from a viewer's perspective, and I don't I don't understand why the NFL doesn't do this either. For the for both the play clock in the National Football League and the pitch clock now in baseball, you should put tenths of a second on there. So we can understand, you know what I mean? Because people see zero automatically. Like, why does he still have time? Like, you know, right. there's a second that is left to burn. So you kind of get that. But I enjoy it, man. And you've already seen, too, by the way, Scherzer has incorporated some gamesmanship with the pitch clock itself. 
So yeah. we talk about the play where he gets a double play called back. Well, there's another one where he literally stands in his ready position for the almost the entirety of the pitch clock, forces the batter to call time, and then immediately resets. And the second that the opposing batter is ready to go, boom, here comes the pitch. Like, these guys can use it to their advantage as well. Well, think back to some of the real creative guys in baseball over the years, right? Like, I'll go back as a Yankee fan, and you know, he pitched for other organizations, but like El Duque, remember him? And it yeah. just like different pitches, different motions. Now, if you want, you can have a rhythm against a hitter and freaking throw like every four seconds. You can long play it. You can do both. So hitters are like, okay, he's going every four seconds. He's going every nine. Is it 14? Like, what the hell is going on? It's funny because it's felt like most of what they did with the rule changes was pro offense. This is actually pro pitcher. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because especially, like, if you're a pitcher, right, it's not, it's, not, um, it's not tipping your pitches. But, like, you're not a guy. You cannot be the guy who, like, okay, I'm going to take it down to the last second every single time. Because that allows batters to know, all right, it's coming now. Like, I'm ready to go. I know when this pitch is coming. So to your point, to work how differently they're going to do it in the pitch clock, if they're going to do it early, if they're going to do it late, like, all of these things can totally help it. Because I would think from a batter's perspective, too, like that, that's something where you're trying to get into a rhythm and it's not going to work out for you. Are you most excited this weekend for like, you know. the real nitty-gritty in the West Coast Conference Tournament? Because that, that one ends pretty quickly you know, at the beginning of the week. Is it hockey? Is it the rivalry game tomorrow with UNLV you know, trying to get things going the right way? And, and actually, UNLV has a lot on the line because Nevada has a lot on the line. Mm-hmm. If the Wolfpack were to lose this game tomorrow and then lose in the first round, in their first round, the quarters of the Mountain West Conference Tournament, they're, at, they're in real jeopardy of not making the tournament. So I know UNLV's down right now after that debacle on Wednesday, but they have something to play. I mean, they also have their dream to play for, but they could really F Nevada. They could. Uh, that is not the thing I'm most excited for. But to, like, to, to, for the topic's yeah. sake, yeah, that is, it is going to be exciting because you obviously want to see UNLV get out of this hole that they've kind of dug themselves into. But this matters for many different reasons for both teams. Nevada is precariously on the bubble when it comes to an at-large bid in the NCAA tournament and cannot suffer consecutive losses, right? This loss and then an early loss in the NCAA, or excuse me, the Mountain West Conference Tournament, as you put it. And for UNLV to be able to get this win to potentially ruin a season and maybe find some momentum going into the Mountain West Conference Tournament, it would be great for them. But, I mean, you know what I'm most excited for. I think I do. I cannot wait to watch John Jones fight. Me too. I, I like. I obviously will not be there, uh, and I've been to a couple of UFC fights. I actually like the TV uh, broadcast better than watching it live. Uh, I was too close the couple of times I've been, Steve. Um, but I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see what John Jones is going to look like. He, the picture did not do him any justice. He looked a lot better at the weigh-ins this morning. He did not look as chubby like he did in the picture that was released well, earlier in the let's, week. Uh, let's put a let's put a hold on this now. Let, let's yeah. uh, take care of business here. Because uh, I want a fight pick, and I want your angle on how to bet the fight, because it is a completely fascinating fight to bet. Uh, we've got another pair of Bonnie Ray tickets. Let's give those away. The Venetian. You can get them at Ticketmaster.com. Coming up, uh, shows on the uh, 15th, the 16th, and the 18th. Uh, Bonnie Ray tickets, two of them, 364-1100, caller seven. On the way back, we'll give some fight picks. Also, uh, get into the basketball game a little bit more. Uh, massive sports weekend right here in Sin City. Follow the guys on Twitter at Steve Cofield and at BJVT or tweet the show at Cofield and Co. 
Cofield and Company presents Grab Bag, only on ESPN Las Vegas. Yeah, John Jones is one of my favorite fighters. I mean, he is infuriating with all of his vices and his lack of discipline, and he's a brilliant guy, but he also can be, you know, in, incredibly petulant and impulsive and has really cost himself in his career. He's going against Cyril Gunn. So Gunn is 6'5", 247. John Jones used to fight at 205. He's, I think, the greatest mixed martial uh, artist ever. Um, but, you know, he's 6'4", so he walked around at 225. So jumping to 248 isn't a massive leap. Um, I think he put the weight on pretty positively, John, but he's not, you know, he's not naturally a 250-pounder. So he's going to have a little bit of a paunch. I know you said at the weigh-in he looked one way, and then, you know, at the uh, fake weigh-in he looked a little bit different. Are you going to bet this fight? I want to, and part of me wants to bet Cyril gone. I just think so. There's this is what this is what holds me back. While you mentioned it, I, I it, by all accounts it doesn't seem like it was a a, a brutal add on in terms of the weight, but you still no, had to add over forty. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, I was going to say like you still had to add on over forty pounds. I think it was like yeah. what a total of forty three or forty six. But it, it seemed at least in terms of reading quotes coming out of his camp and from him it didn't seem like it was a, a brutal add-on like it didn't really tax him to add on that muscle and no, it's something no. he's been kind of working on with his body anyway for a little bit but i feel like steve like he and this is what holds me back because you're right he is the greatest mixed martial artist ever he's incredible with what he's been able to do but you're almost fighting in a new body and, and i wonder what that is like when these guys are so in tune with their bodies and the way that he has come up as a mixed martial artist fighting it the way that he has been at it's one thing to practice and to spar in that body consistently. It's another thing to actually take part in this high-leverage bout where now it is no holds barred, and the guy you are fighting has been fighting in that body for quite some time. And that's what I'm fascinated by. Yeah, I'm not so much worried about how he carries the weight because I think he could have carried that weight years ago. He's a, he's a big guy, long guy, and he also he's one of the few athletes in the history of uh, MMA, especially the USC, who probably could have played close to NFL-level football. His brothers both do, or did, yep. right? They both play in the NFL. He's that level an athlete. My worry in the fight, ring rust is a real thing. That's one thing. Uh, the other one is John Jones has a tendency to fight, to beat the other guy at his game. And to me, if John goes in there and he's going to battle a guy who's a great stand-up fighter, you know, good, good with the, the kicks... Uh, that is a terrible decision. If he fights his fight, then he can just take Cyril Gone down, avoid shots, and deliver on the ground and just melt away the fight. I don't know that he's going to do that. So the way I'm going to bet this fight is I just bet Cyril Gone for a knockout or a TKO at 5-1, to one, but I can't bet Jones now because it was a plus price, yeah. and now it's minus 190, but I think there's going to be a ton of Cyril Gone money tomorrow. Because Joe Rogan is hyping him up. Some other fight people are hyping up Cyril Gunn. So I think the dog will get money, and then Jones will maybe drop back down to like 160. And I'd still, I'm still not comfortable betting him at 160 after it was a plus. I'm an idiot. I should have bet him when it first came out because I think he's going to win the fight. But uh, we're in a zone now where you're like, eh, the value's not great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like it's been, the market's been all over him. I am fascinated to see where the number ends up closing because that will be interesting to see where that, this rush of public support will come in by the time we get closer to the fight. Uh, and, and I think, so let me ask you, because you mentioned it, and you're right, like he, in his past he would have a tendency to almost use uh, everybody's own strength against them. But would you be able to say that in some of those, like especially the Cormier fights stick out, 
those are a little bit more personal. So for him as a fighter, he would want to yeah. beat them at their own game, right? It doesn't yeah. seem to be the same here. I mean, you know, really good fight people will also tell you, John's last two fights uh, were 50-50 fights, and he yeah. actually didn't look super dominant. So it's great. Uh, go check out Adam Hill's story. Adam wrote a story, uh, slugged, hero or villain. What do you think? Is John Jones a hero or a villain? Oh, he's a villain. Really? Yeah. Not like an evil villain, but like he's definitely or yeah. an anti-hero. How about that? That'd be a. Good I don't. One. I don't hold all the transgressions against him. Some of them are really bad too. Um, I actually think fighting the salary fight makes him kind of a hero. That he was, and he he made a lot of money, but he was willing to go. You know what? I'm not going to fight for what I believe. You know, I'm not worth. I want a lot more money. Now, did it accomplish anything? No, it did. It did accomplish a damn thing. It didn't change anything in terms of the pay scale. Thanks to Treasure Island for housing the show today. Thanks, John. Really good job. And thanks, Ari, for holding the show together. We'll see you.